21st May 2010. Quote, This old English major's heart is warmed by the news that the new synthetic cell carries a line from James Joyce, inscribed in its DNA. To live, to err, to fall, to triumph, to recreate life out of life. What would Joyce have thought if someone had told him that one day the synthesized genome of a goat pathogen would carry his words? I would hope that whoever told him would make sure that he did not think this moment marked his literary immortality. In fact, his deathless prose is probably being desecrated by the relentless erosion of evolution right now. The scientist who produced the new synthetic cell copied the genome of a microbe, letter for letter, and then inserted the synthetic version into a host cell. To determine that their experiment worked, they needed a way to tell the genomes of their synthetic cells from the natural genomes that were their model. So they inserted watermarks into the artificial genome. These sequences of DNA, which spelled out the work of Joyce and others through the genetic code, sit in non-coding regions of the microbe's DNA. As a result, these watermarks cannot disrupt any essential protein-coding genes or stretches of DNA that are vital for switching genes on and off. It turns out that the genome of the synthetic cell is not identical to its original, even if you ignore the watermarks. Mutations slip into its sequence during its synthesis, yet those mutations cause no harm to the microbe, presumably because they didn't disrupt an essential function encoded in its DNA. Once the synthetic cell came to life and began to grow and divide, it copied its entire DNA, including Joyce's words. But as lovely as those words may be and as important as they may have been to the scientists during their experiment, they mean nothing to the microbe. Every time an organism replicates, each spot in its DNA has a tiny chance of mutating. In the growing colony of synthetic cells, now numbering in the billions, it's almost certain that Joyce's watermark has already been defaced by a mutation. The bacteria that carry these degraded versions of Joyce presumably do not suffer from these mutations, since the watermarks don't matter to them anyway, so they can keep replicating. By contrast, the DNA in the really useful parts of their genome is changing very little over the generations thanks to selection. Inserting Joyce into the first synthetic cell was certainly a kind gesture, but not a timeless memorial. It would be fascinating to go back to the synthetic cell colony in a few years and sequence Joyce's line again. I'd bet that it won't even be recognizable anymore. The fate of Joyce's DNA points up something important about this project. There have been lots of headlines over the past day about how the scientists who made this cell were playing God. Yet our power, even over synthetic cells, is limited. Once this new cell came into existence, it started changing through evolution, slipping away from its original form. In fact, evolution is the greatest enemy of all scientists who want to use synthetic biology to supply us with medicine, fuel, and other valuable things. Once they engineer a microbe, they start to lose control of their handiwork. Life takes its own course from there. It is life, ultimately, that recreates life from life. End quote. Joyce's new cellular immortality was interrupted in a different way as well. David M. Ewald, Forbes, 14th March, 2011. Quote, After announcing their work, Venter explained, At South by Southwest, May 2010, his team received a cease and desist letter from Joyce's estate, saying that he'd used the Irish writer's work without permission. We thought it fell under fair use, said Venter. The synthetic DNA also included a quote from physicist Richard Feynman, What I cannot build, I cannot understand. That prompted a note from Caltech, the school where Feynman taught for decades. They sent Venter a photo of the blackboard on which Feynman composed the quote, and it showed that he actually wrote, What I cannot create, I do not understand. We agreed what was on the internet was wrong, said Venter. So we're going back to change the genetic code to correct it. End quote.
In Nature, 4th March 2009, Canadian poet Christian Book explained his intention to encode a poem into a cell, inspired by an essay by Bak Chung Wong, who encoded It's a Small World After All into the Anacacus Radiodrons, and an essay by Paul Davies, quote, an astrophysicist and exobiologist at Arizona State University in Phoenix. He speculated that the most efficient way for an alien civilization to make contact across stellar distances would be to send out robot emissaries to colonize the galaxy, then wait until a sentient civilization could discover them. He suggested that such machines already exist, living cells. So perhaps evidence of extraterrestrial communication is already embedded in the DNA of life. I thought, why wait around? Why not make them right now? So I set about seeing if it was technologically feasible to encode a poem as DNA. End quote. Regarding his planned poem, he explained then, quote, The poem can be most easily encoded by assigning a short, unique sequence of nucleotides to each letter of the alphabet, as Wong has done. But I want my poem to cause the organism to make a protein in response, a protein that also encodes a poem. I am striving to engineer a life form that becomes a durable archive for storing a poem, and a machine for writing a poem, a poem that can survive forever. My project is analogous to building a pyramid and then leaving undecipherable hieroglyphs all over it. Later civilizations may not understand the language, but its presence will testify to the enduring legacy of our own civilization. An alien readership hundreds of thousands of years from now might recognize that such tampering with an organism constitutes evidence of an advanced intelligence trying to communicate. I have to let the vocabulary, derived from my chosen cipher, determine what's possible for me to say based on all the constraints of making a functional sequence. I hope the poem won't be a decision so much as a discovery. Language is very robust. Even under duress, it finds a way to say something uncanny, if not sublime. Poets are always trying to write works that come alive, but I'm trying to write a poem that literally is a living thing. End quote. Not only did the poem go ahead, but Book published the Xenotext, Book One, in 2015, detailing the process of its creation and offering new poetry limited in its vocabulary just as DNA is limited to its nucleotides. For example, a poem about bees using only nine-letter words beginning with the first letters of the elements in adenine, C5, H5, N5. Nurturant creatures, honeybees, nursemaid collected chemicals, cocooning nectarous honeydews, heartsome narcotics, cunningly harvested, numbingly hypnoidal.
Interior, go Purdue, slash house, night. We left Lena leaning over her microscope. She has just poked with a scalpel her own left forearm, sight of the mysterious bruises that seem to be transforming over time. We cut immediately as this minute begins to Lena from her left, silhouetted as she leans down to look into the microscope. Second three, cut two, extreme close-up on blood cells. The script says the biconcave shape are clearly visible. The magnification increases, but we are already closer. One cell dominates the central third of the frame, red with darker patches and a glowing yellow corona, like the sun eclipsed by a red moon. The script says we see inside the translucent cell structure, where something is shimmering. In fact, we watch as the right side of the cell darkens, changes colors to blues and greens, and then divides from the redder left half. The red cell glows bulbous, cancerous lumps, as does the new cell, even as its center begins to redden to be closer to the original. Second 10, cut to Lena. From her left, but farther away than before. We can tell now, if we could not before, that she sits at the dining room table on the side opposite the kitchen. Kane's seat. She pushes away from the microscope. The script offers a more dramatic reaction. Blank-faced. Then she stands, walks past the apparently sleeping figures of Raddick, Lawrence, and a Dr. Ventress. Interior, Ville Purdue slash house slash kitchen, night. Lena enters the kitchen, goes directly to the sink, and quietly, with a minimum of fuss, throws up. When she has finished, she turns around and sees Raddick, standing at the kitchen door, looking at her. Raddick, well, Lena, your thesis is correct. Raddick, what did you see? Lena, it's in me. Raddick, it'll be in all of us. Lena, I imagine so. Raddick exhales. Beat. Raddick, do you think you can get any sleep? Lena doesn't answer. Raddick, continued. You should try. Cut to exterior, sky, day. Close up on the moon in daylight. Cut to interior Johns Hopkins Medical School slash seminar room, day. Lena, talking to her students. Lena, so we can describe cancer as a genetic mutation that causes unregulated cell growth. But genetic mutation is also the reason we exist. We wouldn't have evolved from the single cell organism from which we're all derived. Lena pauses. Lena, continued. I think it's partly why cancer frightens us. It doesn't just hurt us and kill us. It changes us. Cut to Exterior, Ville Purdue slash Statue Garden, night. The moonlit human shapes in the Statue Garden. Not quite motionless, moving gently in wind. Cut to Interior, house slash bedroom, night. Lena's face, moonlit. Seen over a man's shoulder. In bed, having sex. Instead, still at the kitchen table, Lena breathes. Hard. Stills herself. In second 18, we cut from Lena at the dining room table, left hand on the table, right hand in her lap, to Kane at the dining room table, right hand on the table, left hand in his lap. And I want the chair on the left to be knocked over like Lena got up quickly to call for help, and that was the chair that we saw on the kitchen floor when the women entered this house, which is an echo of that house. This fallen chair, an echo of that fallen chair. But that chair is not fallen, and the exact moment is unclear. Perhaps instead of after their conversation, it is before. Minute 8. Or better yet, this is minute 9. One hour ago, Kane's hand is flat on the table. 
minute nine, he flattened his hand on the table before attempting, and then failing, to answer Lena's questions about his mission. Regardless of when, Kane leans forward, like he has the same microscope Lena has. Second 24, we hear Lena breathing hard again, as we cut to interior, house slash bedroom, night. Lena's bare back, and we have seen this very shot before, minute 30. Again, we cannot see the man beneath her, but maybe we remember that it is Daniel, not Kane. The editing of the shots is close to before, but not exact. Lena rocks forward and back, forward and back, then we angle from the side. She rocks two more times when we angle on Daniel. It should be noted, as it was in minute 30, Lena and Daniel are framed separately. He is not visible in her shots, she is not visible in his. The movie has just offered us Lena in Kane's space at the kitchen table, but still keeps her and Daniel apart visually. Before, we cut from Daniel to the interior of the tent. This time we cut, second 38, to Lena. The script says, now sitting at her bedroom window, gazing out at the night sky over the suburban street. And let us return to DNA before the scene continues. The line from Joyce that J. Craig Venter and his colleagues encoded into Mycoplasma Mycoides was, to live, to err, to fall, to triumph, to recreate life out of life. In the larger context of Chapter 4, The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, Stephen Daedalus has only recently returned home, and he reflects on his Greek namesake, the fabulous artificer who built himself wings to escape his imprisonment. And Stephen imagines, creating proudly out of the freedom and power of his soul, is the great artificer whose name he bore, a living thing, new and soaring and beautiful, impalpable, imperishable. Quote, He was alone. He was unheeded, happy and near to the wild heart of life. He was alone and young and willful and wild-hearted, alone amid the waste of wild air and brackish waters and the sea harvest of shells, and tangle and veiled gray sunlight and gay-clad, light-clad figures of children and girls and voices, childish and girlish in the air. A girl stood before him in midstream, alone and still, gazing out to sea. She seemed like one whom magic had changed into the likeness of a strange and beautiful seabird. Her long, slender, bare legs were delicate as a crane's and pure, save where an emerald trail of seaweed had fashioned itself as a sign upon the flesh. Her thighs, fuller and soft-hued as ivory, were bared almost to the hips, where the white fringes of her drawers were like feathering of soft white down. Her skate-blue skirts were kilted boldly about her waist and dovetailed behind her. Her bosom was as a bird, soft and slight, slight and soft as the breast of some dark-plumaged dove. But her long, fair hair was girlish, and girlish, and touched with the wonder of mortal beauty, her face. She was alone and still, gazing out to sea, and when she felt his presence and the worship of his eyes, her eyes turned to him in quiet sufferance of his gaze, without shame or wantonness. Long, long she suffered his gaze, and then quietly withdrew her eyes from his and bent them towards the stream, gently stirring the water with her foot, hither and thither. The first faint noise of gently moving water broke the silence, low and faint and whispering, faint as the bells of sleep, hither and thither, hither and thither, and a faint flame trembled on her cheek. Heavenly God, cried Stephen's soul, in an outburst of profane joy. He turned away from her suddenly and set off across the strand. His cheeks were aflame, his body was aglow, his limbs were trembling. On and on and on and on he strode, far out over the sands, singing wildly to the sea, crying to greet the advent of the life that had cried to him. Her image had passed into his soul forever, and no word had broken the holy silence of his ecstasy. Her eyes had called him, and his soul had leaped at the call, to live, to err, to fall, to triumph, to recreate life out of life. 
a wild angel had appeared to him, the angel of mortal youth and beauty, an envoy from the fair courts of life to throw open before him in an instant of ecstasy the gates of all the ways of error and glory. On and on and on and on. He halted suddenly and heard his heart in the silence. How far had he walked? What hour was it? There was no human figure near him, nor any sound borne to him over the air. But the tide was near the turn, and already the day was on the wane. He turned landward and ran towards the shore, and running up the sloping beach, reckless of the sharp shingle, found a sandy nook amid a ring of tufted sand knolls, and lay down there that the peace and silence of the evening might still the riot of his blood. He felt above him the vast indifferent dome and the calm processes of the heavenly bodies, and the earth beneath him, the earth that had borne him, had taken him to her breast. End quote. Continuing in the script, Reveal the man on the bed behind her. It isn't Cain. It's her work colleague, Daniel. But the revelation has already happened, and we have seen the scene before, and the curtains are drawn, the room is dark, but for a bedside lamp outside of frame. So we get Lena. Again from behind, but clothed now. Sitting at the side of the bed, turned a quarter to the left toward the lamp. Her left hand is by her mouth. She is thinking. Beats pass. Then Lena speaks. Lena, this was a mistake. Angle on Daniel, second 46, leaning against the wooden slats of the headboard. Daniel. Okay. He pauses. Angle on Lena, second 50. She lowers her hand beneath her chin and turns just slightly farther away. Angle on Daniel, second 54. In the script, there is more conversation. Daniel, continued. But it's a mistake we keep making. It's not exactly the first time I've been in your bed, or you in mine. Whenever he goes away, we find ourselves right here. Lena, it's still a mistake. Daniel half laughs. Daniel, you want to have this conversation again? Silence. Daniel continued. Fine, let's have it again. And we come to the line in the film. You spend more time away from your husband than with him. Smash cut to angle from foot of bed. Lena abruptly drops both hands to the bed and pushes herself, starts to stand, and time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Annihilation is all we are. Annihilation. 